Hi, I'm Chris Whiteout. Welcome to Living It, the podcast where we join experts in the experience of being human. Be bold. Say yes to adventure. Say yes to living it. This is Chris Whiteout. Welcome to Living It. I'm with a good buddy, Kelly Smith. Kelly's from, from Canada. We used to race wheelchairs together. Kelly has a long list of things that he has done. So he was a speed skier, Paralympic silver medalist in the marathon, a free diver, uh, what taught a commercial, commercial pilot and instructor, a, an air traffic controller. <laughs> the thing we really want to talk about right now is he's a paraplegic who is now mountain biking. And he's not mountain biking on four wheels. He's mountain biking on two wheels. Regular, I mean, you wouldn't even, you would not even notice a difference, I don't think, if you saw him. So, so I want to talk about this. What, Kelly, first, what made you think that you wanted to get back? And it's back on your old mountain bike, right? That you, that you started on at least? Well, I wish that was my... Boy, I'd be uh, killing it in the market or in my, my bank account if that was my old mountain bike because I'd be sell- selling it for 30 years. So I kind of left that, uh, made it sound like that in one of my videos. But what I meant by that is that I'm back on a bike after 30 years. But uh, that's a, you know, two-year-old uh, Santa Cruz top-of-the-line DH bike. And, uh, yeah, so uh, it, I'm not back on my old bike, but I'm back on a bike and uh, loving it. How does this work? So, so maybe, maybe you need to take us back a little bit just to talk about the situation. So you, you had a rock climbing accident long time ago, right? And yeah. incomplete paraplegic, what, what level, sensation, function, what do, you, what do you have going on? Yeah, so I'll take you back. First of all, thank you for, uh, you know, you threw off that list and I started feeling a little bit, uh, you know, excited about all the stuff I'm doing. Half the stuff I've kind of forgotten. Like, wow, I did do that. Yeah, that was, wow, that's great, man. <laughs> I'm going to reconnect to that. Um, yeah. Well, I left off driving the Baja bike to, or the Baja truck too. Yeah. We'll get to that. I guess spent an hour and a half telling you a lot of different crazy stories, but uh, you know, that's what's so cool about you and, and what you're doing. That's what you're going out and doing and reaching out to people like myself that are pushing the limits and sharing that and opening up people's minds. But I, you know, I've been fortunate to really uh, have that uh, sort of open range of doing things and a little bit crazy to want to try and do some of the stuff I've done. But for me, the mountain biking, uh, so when I hurt myself in 91, uh, I was same sort of thing, uh, adventurous, thrill seeker, uh, you, know, you know, mountain biking, windsurfing, rock climbing, a lot of different sports. And so I ended up falling rock climbing on a lead climb and one of those oh shit moments where I kind of went past what I should have been doing and fell about 50, 60 feet off a cliff and uh, ended up with an L1 vertebrae fracture, which uh, almost, you know, you know, I've been pretty fortunate. It's rare to have any sort of muscles below your waist when you break your back, and I have my quads. Uh, so I'm L3 para, paraplegic, uh, which gave me the ability, not very strong, but I can move my quads and I can stand, and I look like a drunk John Wayne when I walk. So uh, I don't walk that much. Uh, so... But at that time, mountain biking was just kicking off. You know, there's, uh, I had my first, uh, stealing my brother's mountain bike, actually. It was called The Mountain Bike. You know, weighed probably 60 pounds, and uh, it was the first bike that was designed to go off into the bush. And then I uh, upgraded to the Rocky Mountain Hammer after that. And 
I mean, I love mountain biking. It's still my first passion of any sport. I just, I love being out of, out on the uh, trails. And it's that combination of thrill-seeking, doing the DH as fast as you, as you can, you know, and the pucker factor of, you know, dodging trees and, you know, riding the, the rim of a, you know, a, bit, a berm or whatever. And, uh, and then the grunt of going uphill, you know, you got to earn that downhill. So when uh, I had my accident, uh, that sport kind of just became a little unattainable. I give it a shot a few times, you know. I'd see my friends heading off, hitting some trails as the sport evolved, seeing the bikes get better, and I'd be just jealous every time sitting there. So every once in a while, I'd stupidly, you know, jump on a mountain bike, and they'd duct tape my feet to the pedals, and we'd uh, l just look for a gravity run. But uh, that turned more comical than realistic for me, because half the time, I'd just end up on the side of the trail, you know, with duct tape to a bike with people looking at me going, what the heck is this guy doing, man? It's ridiculous. Um, so it's evolved now with the fact that e-bikes came out and the technology changed everything for me. And the fact that, you know, uh, pedal assist doesn't work for me. I can't generate enough power. The best I can do is pedal on flats with no resistance, you know. Uh, so any resistance and that's it, I'll fall over if I'm trying to self-propel. Uh, so uh, that's when I uh, linked up with a guy out of uh, Seashell, BC, uh, Bjorn Inga, who was involved in a lot of the cranked bike stuff with uh, the BC boys back in their you know, mountain bike revolution out of uh, Camels, BC. And um, he has now got a company called Crank Bikes. And his e-bike is a little different. It's a mounted motor that goes onto just about any mountain bike frame and then it goes up to a throttle connects to your drive chain just through like your regular mountain bike drive chain and then a throttle and so that is perfect for me because i can put my very limited power into it and most of the time i'm not pedaling or i'm fake pedaling it looks like i'm pedaling but i'm not really doing much and it's the throttle that does everything and i can book up to 40k with that throttle it doesn't chew it's not like a dirt bike but it has good good torque good speed and that was my ticket. I saw that and I went, okay, I think this is going to be my avenue to getting back on the bike. It's been a lot more challenging than I thought. And it's had its dicey moments. But um, yeah, it's been go since uh, I got hooked up with him and his, uh, and his motor. So what do you do? You clipless pedals, I'm assuming? You, you, clip, or yeah. you clip, into your, clip into your pedals. So you're wearing like regular shoes. So that keeps your legs there and, and any power output you have. And then you're just, you're just sitting on the seat, just same way. Yep. You don't have the ability to stand up over, over jumps or any of that stuff, do you? I can stand up. I'm just going to reach back here real quick and I'll show you. This was the other key component. So you're right. I do. Uh, duct tape was not going to be the long way to go on this sport. Um, I ended up, uh, you know, those that have AFOs out there, ankle foot orthotics, know that they generally wrap behind your ankle and then, you know, under your foot and give some stability. I went to an orthotics guy and got him to build this one. So my foot slips in this way and this thing does not move. It's bulletproof. It actually looks like a, a shin protector of some sort. You like the blue uh, yeah. uh, tiger leopard skin there? Pretty sexy. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's important to look good. It's important, yes. You know, you got to have style too. Uh, so once we got that dialed in, I, I slide that into a regular boot. I have to go boot style, which is tricky to get that thing into a boot. So I want to size up and then I clip it. So then my feet are locked to the bike. That's the sketch part is that my feet are not coming off that thing. Uh, fortunately, they do on nasty wipeouts. So I'm not 
permanently stuck to that thing during, you know, big falls. But uh, it doesn't come off when I'm riding. I never had it kick off or suddenly fall off. And, and then from there, I'm riding the bike like anybody else. Uh, you know, I've got, I've had, a, I don't care if I'm doing the granny run to, to you know, the, the down to the beach or whatever. I've got full armor on, head, shoulders, knees, uh, and, and two or three layers under my skinny little butt. You know, as you know, uh, what, we went, all of us paraplegics went from having a glutus maximus to a glutus minimus. So uh, no longer I can rely on that big butt muscle to protect my butt. So I've got like this much layer of padding under my ass so that uh, when I sit on it, um, it's nice and cushy. And um, You anticipated and, my question. I was, yeah. <laughs> I was thinking about my butt and going, okay, I wouldn't want to <laughs> sit on yep. a mountain bike seat. That sounds like a bad idea. And so your Very butt is idea. protected and, and your boys are protected, I'm assuming. Yeah, as a result. Okay, yeah, exactly. Because yeah, that yeah. would be another worry there. <laughs> Absolutely. You're right on the right track. You got to protect the most important parts of the body. You know, I, I don't mind breaking a leg or an arm, but man, don't keep the boys happy. Keep the, everything in the right spot down there. Um, and you don't need it being sore unnecessarily. So I actually overpadded the very first time I went out, uh, you know, that skinny little heart mountain bike seat. I, I, I went and got, uh, you know, uh, the plastic and cushioning and my butt was, you know, about this thick underneath me. I'm like, oh yeah, this is going to be all right. But it was like a teeter-totter. I was sitting on that thing and as unstable as hell, it was like, this is not going to work, man. Yeah, I was you're raised up a little higher. And, yeah, Way exactly. too high. Yeah, I had no control of the bike, so that was too much. So now I have just the, I've researched different padding that's really thin but absorbent and does the trick for me. It's still a little bit, uh, you know, uh, on the long rides it starts to, but that's like any biker, you know, we, long rides, everybody's ass gets sore. Um, but I still pad up everywhere else too because even for a small stop, if I, suddenly lose power, I lose a little bit of balance on some trails, the technical ones are always tough. Uh, it's a it's a fall over, it's not a step out like most people. So if I don't have a tree or a buddy nearby, it's So I've, I've taught myself how to fall, you know, with limited injuries, but that's why I'm fully padded like a football player. So it, it looks funny. People are riding around in shorts and, you know, they got the little umbrellas and, you know, looking like they're, you know, like casual day out on the park and here I go by ripping with a full helmet and you know fully geared up like I'm ready for some sort of you know full contact mountain biking uh, but you got to do it I mean the whole idea is to ride and be able to ride tomorrow without hurting yourself so so you're fully you're fully geared up and and the thing is do you do so you you ride everywhere I mean I, I thought initially that it was just downhill but are you doing downhill? You're doing uphill. What 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 kind of riding are you doing? Well, that was the key. This is you know. So my evolution of mountain biking really started with the idea. Of, okay, I'm going to get out on a mountain bike again. So prior to the e-bikes, like everybody else, I was trying the four wheelers. I was trying the three wheelers. Uh, the one similar to the one off that you did uh, Kilimanjaro on and stuff. And they're all you know they all are specialized and good in certain areas, but uh, all limiting. And even this has its limits too. But what I found with the four-wheeler and the three-wheelers was that I still needed either too much help from friends or I needed too much gravity. It was very limited on the trails that I could hit. You'd have to go and research and find out where you could ride. I wanted to have freedom either to ride by myself or ride the same trails as my friends. And so 
Like again, that was that uh, e-bike disconnection, getting back onto two wheels, worth the risk, you know, as far as the crashes go. And then I started to see other people doing it with the, the buckets, you know, there'd be people doing gravity runs with buckets and that's cool too, but again, you're limited to gravity. So um, with this one, yeah, I'm riding everything. I do the full, all the rides that my friends uh, do and it's only limited to, to my ability to navigate uh, the technical. And that's, that's like anybody else. You gotta navigate, you have to have the ability to, to ride the trail. Um, and it has its challenges because you have, a mountain biker has that ability with their, keep their gravity, you know, their, their center of gravity low and drive with your legs so that you know you're controlling the bike and you can go slow and fast. My problem with going, especially uphill, is that you have this powerful motor and it's not, it's very sensitive. So when I'm going uphill and doing technical stuff, uh, it's very easy to pop a wheelie. It's very easy to lose control of the bike and then off, end up off the trail. And if you're going up something technical through rocks or switchbacks, um, that's where I've had a, a zillion, if, if, 90% of my crashes have been going uphill through technical stuff just because I pop a wheelie and I lose my line or I lose balance and uh, um, yeah, so, but I love the freedom. That's why I keep doing this is because of the freedom of riding any trail I want. Now I'm pushing the limits. I would still say this is very doable for, for anybody that wants to give it a try, even if they don't even have the leg power that I have, a bucket to get you set up on, you know, with your, with, uh, you know, your feet clipped in, a nice cushy, you know, bucket for the, if you don't go my style, which is just padding, put a bucket on. I'm, I'm actually here right now in Golden, BC, um, with a friend of mine that's just kind of taking up management in uh, this uh, beautiful lodge that's sitting, that's surrounding me right now with the mountains in the area. And, uh, and the trails here are perfect. There's some blue, millions of little blue trails. And then if you want to get more adventurous, you can, continue all the way up to Kicking Horse uh, Resort, which has got some diamond runs and some DH stuff. And so I'm kind of here right now exploring, but I'm just looking at this place going, holy crap, this is gonna be, this would be an amazing place to host a, an event here, you know, an adapt event. They do have a new trail that they're actually um, designing right now and just finishing, which is a full adaptive one for the four wheelers. So lots of opportunity here right, right now. And I'm, I'm stoked about the fact that I'm here to get some new trails. So, so let's take just a little step back because the first thing you think about when you're talking about a two wheeled bicycle is, mm -hmm. is balance. Yeah. What's the, what's the balance like? Cause you, I mean, you talk <laughs> about the technical stuff, you've kind of jumped ahead on us. What's, what's the balance like? Is that, and what was it like to start off? Oh, you, you, you hit it right there. You hit it right there. Cause it's a very, it had been a long time. You know, it had been a long time since I even got on with, you know, duct tape and, and on a mountain bike. And the, so when I got this thing all dialed in, clipped in, and I went for a short ride with some friends on a skinny little trail, I felt like a giant. You know, I, you're sitting in your wheelchair and you get accustomed to this height for so many years that this is normal. As soon as I got on that trail, it looked like a long way down to the ground for my wipeouts. And I felt so, that's also when I padded myself too much. I felt so sketch. I was having a tough time staying on a very basic trail. I just, I, I really felt like, you know, kind of, you know, you put a two by four in the ground and you can walk across it and you throw it up at 10 feet and it starts feeling a little bit sketchy. That was me. I was sitting on that bike, not feeling the balance just wasn't there. 
what I realized though, first of all, was that, you know, like our evolution of being in a chair, you do everything from your upper body, you know, like everything you control is from your upper body. That's not a good balance point for a mountain bike, you know, you, so I had to slowly transfer my weight down to my feet and really transfer my weight down to my butt and, and allow myself to flow through a lower center of gravity. And once I started to relax and not try and muscle this, you know, the steering and the mountain bike from my upper body and started working on balance points and, and balance of the bike, then it got easier and easier. And I have to constantly remind myself of that. You know, when I go into an area where balance is everything, you know, like going across little logs, uh, you know, they set up on those trails, those, you know, kind of boards and logs that you got to go across. And those ones always catch me up. Right? My center of gravity goes right up again. And then, I, and, and then I'm sketch, you know, ready to wipe out. So it's tough. It takes a long time and I'm still working on that, getting my center of gravity low. Well, it's a mental battle as well, right? I mean, that Completely. sounds like yeah. a big thing. Yeah. And, the th and the thing is, because you also, you don't have the ability to effectively abort, right? I mean, it's like, you're kind of, you don't have the ability to just jump off the bike and be okay. Like it's you, <laughs> you are committed going uphill, you're committed going downhill, you're committed. And, and the faster you go, the greater risk you take and the worse yeah. the wipeouts can be <laughs> potentially. And, and so, so I'd imagine that's part of the intrigue for you. Uh, absolutely. I mean, I love the thrill of it. Love riding that edge. I have tried to tweak my risk to reward filter that's on me. That's always been, that's what got me in a chair. That's what gets me in trouble all the time is uh, I don't have a good risk reward filter. I'm always ready to push the limits, uh, even for the not so great awards, rewards for what I've done. I mean, it's the thrill seekers, right? That is, that is the key to thrill seeking is what is your risk to reward on it? So I've dialed that back a little bit because I'm trying to stay on the bike and not in the hospital. But um, yeah, I've hit some, but you're committed. You're fully, once I've clipped into that bike and I start moving down a trail, um, you know, I'm, I'm either full on looking at the course, looking at the trail, staying the line. Um, and every once in a while, taking a peek, if there's a tree that I can grab onto, if I'm getting a little bit, you know, like I need to rest or whatever, I'm always scaling ahead one to ride the trail as fast as I can, but two, particularly, I mean, DH, you're already set up, you know, it's going to flow unless it's a technical one. Uh, but when you're doing cross country, I'm always kind of, you know, keeping that in the back of my head. If I can't do this, what's my out? You know, is it a wipeout or is it a tree or something else? Uh, is it mentally exhausting? In a good way. It's mentally, you know, you're staying focused uh, for sure. I, I wouldn't say exhausting, but just mentally, you know, vibed on because uh, I've noticed that when I, when I stop, if I try and just go with the flow and forget about that, that's where I usually end up in a crash. You know, uh, uh, one of my worst crash pr crashes is a perfect example of that. We did an eight ri hour ride. It wasn't meant to be eight hours, but you know, we were up in Whistler and we were doing a uh, ride up a, a run called Into the Mist. And then it was gonna go down Lord of the Squirrels. Huge, really cool run. Takes you up into the tundra of Whistler, beautiful views. But, you know, a lot of technical spots to this. And I'd probably wiped out 40 times trying to get through the uphill switchbacks and stuff to the point where I tore my tricep too many times reaching out, trying to brace myself as I fell. That's my new adjustment. Don't stick your hand out. Um, but uh, we were coming up on a ledge. It was really intimidating because it was a ledge, trail, ledge. And, you know, I, I kind of just lost my focus. We'd been riding for six hours at that point. 
and I lost my focus, kind of relaxed. And next thing I know, I'm losing balance and heading over this, you know, 68 foot drop off into the rocks. And I was with a couple of guys from France that were, you know, we'd met and were riding with us. And he came, you know, jumped off. I mean, we weren't going fast. He jumped off his bike and, you know, saw this happening, went to grab me. And all, the, all it did was take him down with me. So, you know, it was nasty, nasty, nasty. I'm just thankful that one didn't turn into a much worse wipeout. My bike went 20, 30 feet down the cliff and landed perfectly. I think it did like a perfect gymnastic flip somehow clipped out of me i still don't know how to this day how my bike clipped out of me and landed wedged between two rocks on on the tires not a scratch on the bike and i'm sprawled across rocks like this looking mangled but uh yeah i can't take the focus off you got to just be confident and right stay the line just you know you gotta when it's technical like that it's all about uh not backing off it's stay the course keep your balance Easier said than done, though, right? I mean, that's the objective of every single sport is, well, just stay focused. I mean, like, look ahead, plan, plan ahead. We're going to make it all work. Stay focused yeah. and, and, you'll, and stay committed to what you're doing. But then as soon as you get afraid or as soon as you get tired, you back off or your mind yep, drifts. And, and so yep. that's, that's where I'm saying it's got to be exhausting on the yeah you know on the mentally on the mental emotional kind of side of things so did this i mean you, you've done so many things that <laughs> that that really are taking a lot of risk i mean i i didn't know until recently that you'd been a speed skier and mm. you're on the canadian national team as a speed skier can you describe to people what speed skiing is and maybe you can tell us how fast you went. We'll do the conversion into miles per hour if we need to. <laughs> yeah, I can share a little bit. I, you know, I was just getting another one of those ones I really just got into when my accident sort of curtailed that one. But uh, I've always enjoyed speed. You know, I, I love the thrill of, you know, pushing limits on the speed side and, and speed skiing. You know, you go out skiing and you're carving nice big turns. And I, I linked up with a bunch of crazy Canucks that uh, introduced me to the sport of speed skiing. And I mean, they're doing speeds way faster than I ever did now. Uh, and even then I was still just kind of getting going as far as uh, how fast the sport was. So the top guys now are doing 230, 240 kilometers an hour, which is, oh uh, man, I, I don't know, 140 miles an hour, 150 yeah. miles an hour, something like yeah. that. It's fast. It's up there. Uh, I think the world record at my time was between 120 and 130 miles an hour when I was speed skiing. I hit just over 100, uh, about 108, 110 miles an hour uh, on one of my runs up in Whistler. And uh, another thing that's just, it's a pure rush. You know, first of all, it's the mental game of standing on top of a very steep run. Um, and typically, you're either standing on the slope and you're looking down going, oh my God, I'm going to tuck this whole thing. That's insane. Or when I was in Sweden, we had this run, Hundfila, uh, uh, it's Dog Mountain, and the run starts off gentle, and then it's a little, literally a drop off right after it's that. An elevator shaft, yeah. Yeah, you're starting at the start, and you don't see the bottom. You just see this freaking drop off in front of you. What a thrill when you roll over top of that, and you, you know, you hit. As soon as you hit over 100 miles an hour, you're starting to get to this point where you're floating on the, um, you know, on the snow and you're, there's pockets of air under your skis. If you've ever seen speed skis, they're big planks. 
and eventually you start hovering you know over the over the snow and you have to just gently tilt your skis inwards like this so that you're running a little bit of an edge because if you stay flat you get you know you get all fishy so yeah skis start to swim around and then exactly you're... yeah yeah and so that's you know so you're holding this tuck and you you just feel like a jet you know you can when people go by and you're a spectator watching a speed skier it's literally a jet going by you know because you're just breaking through the air so quickly and then when you stand up man it's like jumping out of a plane like a parachute you know you just go like this and you lean into the air and it's just um, it was fun it was uh, so yeah i got up to somewhere around 108 110 miles an hour on one of my runs which is enough to grab your attention that's for sure and so speed skiing yep. is literally just steep slope you're going straight there are no turns you go straight and then there's a run out or a place where you yep. just throw them sideways and just just stop yep. and uh, yep. you've got the full rubberized suit you've got the fairings on your boots and on your helmet uh, bent poles you run in 225 <laughs> centimeter yeah exactly yeah. 225 centimeter skis is that what you're yep, yep. so you're yep. running 225 you got the full fairings i love aerodynamics too i think that's the other reason i liked it i was in there they knew me as the tech guy you know what i mean uh, which, you know, that sport was full of a lot of crazy guys. None of them really got into the tech side. They just had lot, you know, they just had a really high risk factor, thrill factor that, uh, you know, drove them to the sport, uh, which was me too. But I also liked the tech side and I like winning, you know. Uh, so I went into the, the dialing in of the snow. I knew everything about snow and what wax. I had my fairings dialed in, came from, you know, was a, not a pilot at that point, but I had a lot of aerodynamic uh, sort of uh, interest and, and a little bit of knowledge around that. So I was dialing it, everything in. I even went to, at one point, uh, I got into an air show. I connected with the organizer of an air show and he let me um, run down the runway because part of training in the summer is to practice your tuck limit the, the drag of your tuck so a lot of speed skiers do that on top of cars and you know get a car that's doing over 100 miles an hour and you practice and they do the video and you i didn't have access to an air tunnel anyways but so that was my way of doing it promoting the sport so i went to a local dealer we worked out a, he got me on top of a car that, that one of his sports car with racks and uh, i was in an air shore doing about 130 miles an hour down a runway <laughs> on top of a car in my tuck it's just ridiculous. Yeah, I still have the uh, the brochure from that particular event, and it's pretty hilarious. I'm just, I'm coming off the runway, standing in my speed suit, looking like an alien. Man, it was uh, it was pretty funny. Well, yeah. so far out of context too. This is the middle yeah. of the summer, and yep. you were you were in a winter sport, coming off the yeah. off the top of a car. But that's just that's the cavalier nature of the sport too, isn't it? Like, yeah. let's figure out how totally. to do it and. And it's not super, super scientific. I mean, obviously there are people who I'm sure are, who are figuring out their waxes and the grinds, like the pattern that you put into yes. your, into yes. your skis. Very important. Where, you oh, know yeah. that well too, very well coming from your ski background and performance side of that. Yes. Very, very key. I mean, top speed is everything. And when you're getting into, you know, these events where, you know, between first and 10th place is, you know, point. 0 0.1, 0.01, um, you know, speeds, uh, everything comes down to the tuck and your wax and just everything. Yeah. Yeah. And you just need to be aerodynamic. And what are the, what does it feel like to do a speed skiing run? Obviously jitters at the beginning, but what happens? Talk us through, talk us through what a speed skiing and how long is the run and all of that stuff. 
Well, it depends on the, the run. For me on speed skiing, um, you know, I, I always seem to take the sport beyond my ability. I was a good skier, <laughs> but not a great skier. And so I was really good at the chalk, really good at, you know, just everything I needed to do to be as fast as I could, you know, in some of my first events, you know, I was placing in the, you know, the top five against guys that were been doing it for a while. My problem was I sucked at stopping at high speed, you know, and that's not a good thing to do. Be, you know, that's a, that's a, that's the wrong skill not to have when you're doing over a hundred miles an hour. I don't stop very well. So, you know, some of these ones had really nice long runouts. So all you had to do is stand up and decelerate. But there were others, just like in a DH, and I'm sure you've met, had those where you get to the bottom, you get through the finish line, and it's not a long runout. You got to decelerate and crank a big turn and get to a stop pretty quick. So those run, those courses, my nerves were really high because I was thinking way too much about the bottom and not so much about my run. Um, if it was a good, uh, you know, run out at the bottom, then I'm calm, you know, like I really felt, you know, good about everything that I was about to go. I never worried about wiping out. Um, I just worried about, um, you know, the stop, but, uh, focusing on what I needed to do, you know, getting my tuck, get into the, you know, get into a nice tight tuck and, and let the, let the skis run. And I don't know. I think that a lot of sports, when you're dialed in, it's a vacuum. You know, it's kind of like in wheelchair racing, uh, you know, you got your pre-jitters, you've got all the prep stuff that you do. But for me, I was definitely one of those people that as soon as the gun went, um, I was in my own vacuum. Uh, I never, all my nerves kind of went away and I just focused on the moment. And that was the same for speed skiing. Uh, but the thrill really comes when, you know, you, you're running it out at the end and you're standing up. It's the pre and the post for me anyways, because uh, during I'm, just so much of a vacuum that it, it, it kind of is what it, it becomes a blur. Was it physically demanding or not? No, no. The only time it was physically demanding when you had to haul those. There's a few places where you couldn't get to the top of the event by lift. So you had to sling those 225s over your shoulder with a rubber suit, you know, uh, that you're wearing. You, you know, take half of it off around your waist, but you'd have to hoof to the top. You know what that's like, you know, trying to hoof and snow with gear. So that was, that's your biggest workout. The rest, you know, people, the run is maybe, God, it's not very long, 10, 20 seconds, something like that. So holding your top's not hard. It's not like you get leg burn, like in a DH run where you're cranking turns and, you know, coming out of the, your tuck and, and holding the line. Physically, it really doesn't take much. It's, uh, you know, just, it's technique. It's all technique and getting the right tuck and, and the only physical demand is uh, at the end when if you have to do a you know a hard stop or something. Interesting though, um, you were talking about the, the the mental side of it. The worst. So I have seen some ugly, ugly crashes, and there's two things that you know are ugly about speed skiing. Um, most of the time, when you wipe out, you just slide forever. You're in this rubber suit. The skis kick off, and you just slide down this straight course. So it's not too dangerous. When it gets dangerous, though, is when you're going so fast that the rubber starts to melt to your skin. <laughs> and that's not fun. Or you So you have to keep speed. moving, right? You can't be on one, you can't, you know, sort of on one leg, you're sort of rotating, trying not to. But I would assume that, yeah, you're going to try and control that a little bit. Uh, you're going to end up with a nasty road rash that either way. Um, I had one friend, though, that wiped out bad at the bottom and it, 
the ski 225. So torque off of that, if it doesn't kick off the way you want, uh, it just snaps your legs. And that's what happened to him. You know, that, that much speed, that 225, you got those things cranked to the max, you know, just stay in them. Don't know why. And uh, yeah, he shattered his leg really, really bad. So the, the, not, the wipeouts are generally no big deal. But when they are a big deal, they're ugly. They're really ugly. Well, that resistance, that air resistance is a big deal too, right? It's like you stick your hand out the window when you're driving down the highway. That's yeah. what you're feeling. Because I mean, like I've been in a, uh, in a wind tunnel and, and it's, it's actually tiring. You do you know, three or four minutes or something like that. And I think maybe three minutes was the most that we did. And they're trying to tune in mm -hmm. your talk and your aerodynamics yeah. and everything. We've got 60 miles an hour of wind blowing at you. You're not going anywhere. No. But, you know, that's where the suits are so good. You know, you got those, like I say, Darth Vader helmets on you. You've got the rubber suit, this tight, tight, tight tuck, you know, and you're just, you're adjusting every little thing, even fingers. Where are my finger? Am I holding it here? Am I holding it here? Am I rounding my shoulders? Am I doing this? How much squat do I want? Even arching your back, all those little adjustments change the way that the, the air comes off your back. That's the big thing. It's not so much how it hits you. How does it spill off your back? Because if it spills with turbulence, you're slowing down. If it flows off of you, um, there's quite a bit to aerodynamics in creating that bullet flow that it comes off around you and then flows off of you. You create that shape, that's where you go fast. Then you combine that with the right wax and stuff. So when you're in the tuck, it, other than if there's a gust of wind or something, you can hold the tuck pretty good. It's when you transition from that to standing up because you're in this in a nice tight tuck and everything's streamlined. And then when you stand up, it's, it's probably more impactful than, than a parachute jump because you, you don't hit terminal ball unless you're in a tuck. Most of the time you're like this when you're parachuting and which, you know, I've done a few times too. Flying squirrel kind of thing. Right. Yeah. It, yeah. So you're like this, but even without the flying squirrel, just free fall, you're like this. So you're taking on the air resistance. If you go into a tuck when you're when you're when you're uh, jumping out of a plane, you would pick up more velocity. Which uh, so when you're in a tuck and you're doing the same thing, you're hitting a higher velocity than what a skydiver would in his normal sort of spread form. So when you stand up and transition to that, it's like getting punched in the face, and you got to be ready for it. Well, aerodynamics became a big part of what you did in wheelchair racing too. I mean, you were you were pretty tight in there with. Uh, with, with the aerodynamics, just a clean, clean running chair. Was that part of what helped you in Athens? So silver medal in the marathon in Athens, but it also, that was a fairly hilly course too. I'd imagine there were some downhills, but there were some uphills, which is really where things are often determined. Yeah, Athens was all about the uphill. You know, it was 10K flat, uh, 20K uphill, and then 10K downhill. So um, yeah, it was very much focused on um, climbing. You know, so I was a medium to bigger size guy really in wheelchair racing because of my, you know, having a little bit of leg muscles. So I weighed, uh, you know, in my leanest, I was 140 pounds in Athens. And the guys that, you know, that I had to beat that were good hill climbers were all between 100 and 110 pounds. You know, Kurt Fernley and that crew, Aaron Gordian, all 100 to 100. So they had 30 pounds on me minimum. So I had to really focus on for Athens power to weight ratio. I just had to be the strongest climber I possibly can. And um, you know, through my, uh, through my career, that's what I think I proved was that, you know, pound for pound, I was probably one of the best climbers out there. 
Um, and I focused on that. I, I, I thrived for it, being able to really push the uphills and push through the pain. Peachtree, you know, uh, was one of those races where, you know, I was able to show that, showcase, you know, that, my, that strength of mine as far as road racing went. But uh, the aerodynamics, yeah. I mean, that was focused on Boston because Boston's such a big downhill course. And, it, you know, to win that one, you got to be... Uh, you got to be aerodynamic. And uh, so, you know, just one of those evolutions. I, I, I kind of like that I left a little bit of a legacy maybe in that whole part of pushing the limits of aerodynamics and bringing carbon into the sport. And now all the top chairs are carbon. So a um, little bit maybe uh, history there. Do you have, so silver medal in Athens and that was one, did you guys ever run together? Were you in a pack or, I mean, it looked like from the results that everybody was all spread out. Yeah, well, that's because of the hill. So the first 10K was insane. You know, we had uh, um, Ernst Van Dyke uh, go out super hard because he knew he wasn't necessarily the best hill climber and he wanted to break away from the pack early. So we literally came, came out of the uh, start of that race hitting 40K coming off the start line like, like it was a sprint. It was insane. He was trying to break away right away. So, but when you've got, you know, 60 guys that are super fit, you know, at the top level, it's really hard to break away. Um, you know, even at 40 K we, they just strung out, you know, like 200 meters of aero, you know, people tucking in behind each other and using the draft. So, so, so breaking it down in Athens, you had, uh, it was all spread out. So how did, how did the, how did the race, cause this is, this is kind of cool, right? If, if there's a marathon that you want to win, it's the one in Athens, right? Where the original, I mean, it's the original mm -hmm. marathon, right? Like this is, yeah. Yeah. yeah and I mean, I, I wish I could say I brought home the gold on that one, but I, I can say that, uh, you know, I still feel pretty proud about the silver being, like I said, that I was up against the wall, not being, you know, it really was going to be a, a, um, a light guys race with the 20 K Hills, but I'd planned for Athens probably four years that Athens marathon was on my mind to, to you know, stand on the podium. And so, like I said, my training was all for four years focused on power to weight ratios and climbing and so forth. And, uh, uh, but the race, uh, yeah, you know, getting back to it, the, um, the first 10 K was, uh, you know, just a pack of, uh, we ended up breaking into two packs, but even the front pack was probably 20, 25 racers that were just chained out. And I can remember sitting in the pack with Kurt Fernley, who the guy I was, you know, really focused on mostly as far as the hill climbing, because we've, to we've gone toe-to-toe -to -toe many times in, in different races, and uh, I knew what a strong hill climber he was. So my goal was to either stay with him or to stay close enough that when we got over the hills uh, that I could somehow uh, either overtake him or, you know, to catch up to him on the last 10K downhill. Uh, but, but we were a pack of 2025 20, going up to the, the start of the first hill because it was all flat 10k up to that point and uh, Kurt took off and I felt it was too soon to make that surge at least for me anyways and um, I kind of picked my pace and I, I love this one picture that my brother took uh, uh, that was in one of the lead vehicles he, uh, you got a picture of me and I remember it's kind of like I was telling you, you get into this vacuum when you're, when you're racing or you're doing something that requires your focus. And I was in my vacuum. I'd forgotten about anybody behind me. Didn't care. I, I picked my pace. I picked what I felt was good. And that pace just happened to be faster than anybody else wanted to do. And you can see this chain of about 20 guys behind me on the first hill. And uh, I can remember getting to the top of that hill 
and looking behind me and nobody was there. We're like, well, that's a good sign. That's really good. Feeling strong. Yeah. That's good. I like the sign of that. Kurt was still ahead of me, but the, the rest of the pack was gone. And from there, it was really just picking my pace because he had 20K of uphill. It was like rolling uphills. And I really thought I was going to catch Kurt because I had a good pace. And I had, uh, you know, I, was hit, I hit uh, 67K on one of the DHs going down because there was a couple of, you know, spots where you go over this hill, roll down for, you know, a few hundred meters and then start the climb again. And I thought for sure I was going to catch him. But as it was, I mean, I talked to Kurt later and he said he was, he was, uh, pushing that hill as hard as he could because he knew that at, at once the hills were done that uh, there was a chance I could reel him in. And uh, it was like he was being chased like a, by a dragon or something. So I felt like, you know, just, I was not going to let up. I knew you were back there sort of thing. So uh, it was fun. You know, it was not one of those races that come down to a tactical finish between a pack. It just it was really about how well did you climb those 20 Ks uh, of the hills. Yeah. What a difference between there and then Beijing four years mm -hmm. later where it was just dead flat and it was this gigantic yeah. pack of guys who are all in the same thing. Yeah. What's the mentality of a marathoner? Is a wheelchair mentality, do you think that's different than a runner or no, more like cycling I that, or? I think anybody that you have to, I think in being a marathoner, any sport that requires that you're gonna go and put up more than an hour of effort in, uh, especially at a competitive level, you have to love it. You, lo you have to love grinding it. It's, it's almost a zen. You know, when I, when I would train to do the long distance, it was a zen for me. I, I loved being in that moment of pushing my body to the limit and, and holding that for as long as I could, you know, and getting in a zone. You know, you'd be on this verge of, you know, overdoing it, but listening to your body and uh, just being in that moment, you know, and, uh, I think those are still some of my greatest highs is not so much the racing, but some of the training sessions I had where I'd be out there, you know, really pushing my limits and, and, you know, and, and seeing your body respond, but it really is a Zen. And I think that's the first thing that any marathoner in any sport, which running, cycling, wheelchair racing, you love that uh, being on the road and, and getting into that vacuum of, of, of performance um, with, with your body, your equipment and, and just, uh, you know, the training you're doing. Is that what you miss? Do you, do you miss the training? I miss not hurting. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that was a good hurt back then. And, you know, like you push the limits and it'd be like, oh, that's a hurt, but that's a good hurt. You know, those sore muscles that re your body re responds, you know. Um, I, love, I miss being that fit, but mostly I just miss the, how my body responded to the training. It's tough, you know, like I'm I'm eating as well as I possibly can. I'm doing all the right things, but uh, you know, Father Time, uh, he always wins in the end. And so, you know, I can feel it. I can feel the the joints and the muscles, and you know, the fatigue. So it's kind of that balance of still pushing the limits, staying fit, uh, but recognizing that my body's not going to recover the way it used to. So I'm not going to stop until uh, I drop. But uh, I, I have to be smart to keep some sort of you know longevity going still. So interesting kind of thing. Your brother ended up jump, jumping into a racing chair as well. Your brother, Kevin, who able-bodied guy, thought it looked cool, wanted to do it. Your roommate, Jen, at that time, jumped into a racing chair. And these guys, and they trained. I mean, it wasn't like they were just, they actually got out there and started training with oh, you. Oh, yeah. Yeah. What was the appeal for them? 
Well, you know, we had a really good supportive community there. That was back when uh, the wheelchair racing series in BC, or, you know, that started in Vancouver with Steve Milam. Uh, that's how I got even into racing was Steve Milam in the wheelchair racing community. And, and it was a very open uh, and supportive community. At one point, we got up to probably 18, which, you know, it doesn't seem like a large number, but, you know, in a small little pack, that's a pretty good number. And, uh, yeah, close, I'd say six of them were able-bodied. And for us, it was about breaking down those barriers, perceptual barriers, and saying, this is a sport. Let's stop looking at it as a disabled sport. And if people want to get in a chair and race with us, let's do that. You know, I mean, Jeff Adams, who, you know, I trained with for years and great, you know, loved that guy. But, you know, he he really was a, um, you know, a great sportsman, spokesman for the for the sport. And I learned so much from him. And that was one of the things that he really pushed as well was, you know, the inclusivity uh, and, and this is a sport. Let's uh, let's get everybody in a racing chair and let's you know, let the best person win. It's not about whether you're disabled and, uh, or not. It's about uh, here's another sport and this is the equipment we use. And so that's that was our mentality. And that was, uh, you know, we had my brother, we had Jen, we had uh, uh, yeah, a good three or more, three other people. So when we had give it a go days, we literally opened it up to everybody and it, and it created a larger community, you know, for us, which is a win for everybody. Uh, it created a few issues along the lines, you know, because there were still some people that didn't understand that. Um, you know, I think that's the problem with the world today is we, we jump too quick to form an opinion without really knowing the backstory or understanding the full picture of, of issues. Uh, you know, social media, people jump way too quick. They, they need to take a step back and learn. But that was, well, they were actually at a disadvantage, really. I mean, if you totally. try to take, because yeah. the way that we were sitting, you're basically kneeling on your mm-hmm. on your legs so you're in this yogi kind of position where your where your heels are are touching your butt and your your chest is on top of your quads which is a really good I, I did a race a long time ago in Boston and a guy who wrote for Runner's World wanted to do an experiential article yeah we trained in it and it was a 5 miler or something like that and he went and trained in a racing chair and he came out and he did this five miler and predictably he wasn't he wasn't all that fast but he was you know he, oh. he he did it but when he finished he got out of the chair and his legs had fallen asleep <laughs> and so he couldn't stand up you know so, the, so you look at it and go oh well these people are able-bodied they should be better off than the rest no. of the people but they weren't and and the funny thing about i mean the great thing about kevin and jen was they were in it enough that they qualified and they raced Boston. They raced the Boston marathon, which is the biggest, really the biggest road race in the world. Right. I mean, I think it probably is. And certainly for the wheelchairs, it is. And, and to me, I looked at that and thought that was so cool. And Jen really cool as well. Right. Because she had qualified as a runner and then qualified the next year as a wheelchair racer. Yeah, it was amazing. Yeah, you know, and I mean, the sad part about it, as you know, with the Boston one was that, uh, you know, exactly within our community of racers, everybody knew about Kev and Jen, they'd been to other races, we always called the event organizers to let them know that, hey, we got a couple able bodied racers that are in chairs, we support it, we encourage it, this is an inclusive sport, we want people to see it as a sport, not a disabled sport. So we were always really proactive about creating that awareness so that there was no surprises. But 
you can't reach out to everybody. You can't make everybody aware. And uh, we did the same through Boston. We called ahead and we said, we got a couple able-bodied, you know, my brother, and we talked to the organizers and they're like, oh yeah, no, if they're using a chair, they're using a chair and you guys support it, you support it. But that's not how it ended up, you know, uh, because not everybody got the, uh, the memo on that this was cool. And we, it's so funny how the whole thing turned out and sad because we had an opportunity to really break down some perceptual barriers. And what happened was that at the start of the race, Kev and Jen are getting ready. And of course, they're walking around, they're prepping their chair, they're doing their stuff. Well, that already with Boston, like you say, being such a high profile sport, there was people seeing this and spreading the word. Oh my God, there's a couple of able-bodied people walking around getting in the chairs. What the heck? Why are they cheaters? You know, like they thought these were cheaters. How do you, if you're faking trying to sneak into an event because you have an advantage, which they don't, like you said, would you just blatantly walk around? But they, you know, you're not sneaking. Around. So anyway, they got in their chairs, they raced. And when they got to the finish line, both of them were pulled over and disqualified for being able-bodied. It was so crazy. Reverse, you know, um, just nuts. Jen cried because she worked so hard to be part of this and it's so supportive. But for her, that was an emotional moment. She had just, that is a grueling race. It was a tough day too. You know, it, it was, was a headwind out that there. year. Yeah. Yeah. It was a very tough day. And she gritted through it. Both of them did. And then to get to the finish line and they pull you aside and call you a cheater and disqualify you. That is just so disheartening. It was so wrong. And the media ran all over it, you know, like they were, you know, complete, uh, you know, bad people. And we tried to defend them as much as possible. And a lot came out. But really, there was, if the news had just called and talked to the community first and said, hey, you know, like, did you guys know this? Is it cool? We could have had a really, really great sport about inclusivity and breaking down perceptual barriers. But instead, it just ran with the media that they were cheaters and snuck in and you know, like what were they doing? Grabbing the chair and throwing it over their shoulder and running up the hills? Uh, I, I just don't get it. They're at a disadvantage, you know, but um, yeah, uh, unfortunate event, but we still, I think there was still a lot of good conversation that came out of it. Well, it's, it's one of those because the assumption is that the more able you are, the faster you're going to go. Mm -hmm. And, and I think that the unfortunate part is it does the individual a huge disservice, right? So there's no, there's no adaptability. There's no training effect. There's no strategy or, or whatever. I mean, you, you said that you did a lot of marathons and, and if you're doing a marathon in our time, you're thinking, okay, well, what's the wheel I want to get on? I want to get behind Heinz Fry, right? That is, <laughs> he had his, his knees up around his ears. He was a high level para, you know, and had this crazy, like sort of spider, spider type uh type stroke that was going on but he had you yeah. know, a heart that was probably as big as a basketball and uh and and but then but you know i mean like you don't give somebody like that credit i remember watching and i think yeah. you were in the race it was uh swiss nationals uh it must have been 2000 i think it was and the they were doing the the demonstration that the semifinals and stuff like that the quarters and semis for for the demonstration event for the 1500 demonstration, everybody was there. And then yeah. running the 5k, there was a big, uh, big wind. And so every time there was a tailwind, Heinz would go and just wind it up and you had 
you had Saul and Krieg and you had all the, you know, all the, and Ernst and all the big guys who were just looking at him like, oh, please, please, please. Like, don't, don't go like that on this run. Like, the, not on this, on this lap, like give us a break. And then, then he'd go back to the back and then he'd wind it back up and just trying to take everything out of it. And, and, and talking about the able-bodied people, it's like, oh, okay, so they're taking advantage of these poor disabled people and oh, gosh, they only yeah. have so much in their lives and give them this one mm. thing. And it's like, but can you see that they're there for the joy yeah. of the sport, the beauty of the sport? And they've worked really, really hard. Exactly. And they're not taking any prize money or anything. And if they did, I mean, that would be an, it would be an interesting, an interesting conversation to have at that point. But it's... Uh, but it was really, it was, it, I think it was, it was a lost opportunity. I mean, there's so many different. That's, uh, people want to be righteous and protect us. You know, they want to protect that community that they feel they have to protect. And, you know, yes, wheelchair racing began as an opportunity for people with disabilities, but it doesn't have to remain in that pigeonhole of disabled sport. It grew to a point where this is a sport that a lot of people could enjoy. And it is not easy for an able-bodied person like you described to stuff themselves into that can and push with their arms. And, you know, they, they put a lot of work into to achieve what they were able to do. And, and there is an absolute disadvantage, no, no advantage. I mean, even to break it down to within the sport, you know, we, we classify, uh, you know, in the, in the pair division between those that have, uh, as you know, uh, yourself, uh, we're a T53 and I was a T54. And the basic difference is do you have back and ab muscles? Because certainly in the sprints, you know, that ability to move your trunk and generate more power can make a big difference in the sprint. But what we've they've combined everything from the 1500 up. And if we look right now at the 1500 and uh, some of the other distances, some of the T53s are the world record holders, you know, the ones that have less ability. It's, it's all about training. It's all about, you know, dialing in everything that you've done from your equipment to your training, to that stroke count, to that contact. It ain't about having legs. It's about uh, everything you've done to train for that moment. And, you know, that's, you know, that was the opportunity we had right there to really open up the, the sport and, and, and get people to see what the sport really was about. It's not about just being disabled and having an opportunity. It's about being competitive in a, in a racing wheelchair. doesn't matter what your ability is, able-bodied or not. No, it's about the sport. And I look at it, you know, I look at like the, you know, the spud webs of the world, you know, who five, five or whatever in the NBA who could go and dunk. And you're like, that is so cool. Like you mm -hmm. see somebody who sp supposedly is not supposed to win a race. And, and it was funny, like you look across the starting line at a wheelchair race and for somebody who's sort of uneducated to like, Oh, well that guy, he's the guy who's going to win, who just looks like, looks like Schwarzenegger back in the day yeah. or something. Yeah. And then you look at a, you look at a Heinz Fry who looks like, you know, somebody's <laughs> professor, you know, bespectacled, bespectacled, uh, uh, you know, bald guy who just sort of looks kind of skinny and unassuming. And you're like, yeah, but that's the guy with the motor, you know, and, and, or, you know, you can figure it out, but it's, but it's kind of funny. Nobody, very few people, if it was a betting sport, you know, if it was like horse racing could go and go number seven, number seven's definitely the one that's the one I'm going for. And that's the cool part. You were such yes. an amazing ambassador of the sport. I don't know if you're even aware of this. So, so, we would take, I mean, before you were fully all carbon and, and decked out, we'd take our chairs through the airport and bring it to the gate and it'd be the last thing on and the first thing off and your racing chair hopefully would be treated well. And invariably, as you're going through the airport, you get, how fast can that thing go? 
How yeah. fast can that game go? You know, and, and you answer a few, you know, I answer a few people and, and eventually I get a little bit more cryptic where I'm like, uh, you know, it, it, it depends on the size of the motor. And they're like, well, there's a motor on it. I'm like, yes, that's, that's me. I am the motor, you know, which, which now when I bring mine through, I'm like, yeah, it's grossly underpowered. This is a problem. It's, it's not good, but you would stop and you would talk to every single person along the way was that conscious and what were you trying to do uh thanks for mentioning that i mean i i you're right i mean i don't really put a lot of thought into it but i i, I think if i rewind that a little bit uh you know we all go through in a you know those of us that had an accident at some point in our life and it sort of had to make this adjustment to our new life you know, that's a, it's an interesting transition. You, you have an opportunity to be insightful and learn a little bit about yourself, learn, see society from a different level. And when I had my accident uh, there, you know, uh, I think the biggest challenge I had, uh, I looked at the disability part as just a, a new adventure. And so I started, you know, tackling that right away as best I could. If I walked again, I walked again. If I got you know, fully recovered, great. But whatever happens, I'm going to drive forward and I'm going to maximize my ability through whatever adventures, you know. So I was going to find my path. And you're but, okay with that right away? Well, I wouldn't say I was okay with it, I, but I was, I was up for the challenge. You know, like I can remember my second night in the hospital where I, you know, went to, they wanted to, they'd done the back surgery. As you know, your first <laughs> challenge once you have back surgery is pain because they've stabilized your back. You're not going to screw that up anymore. You just got to push through the pain, but they want to get you mobile right away. They want to get you sitting up, standing, well, not standing because I wasn't going to stand, but, uh, you know, just get you mobile. And I remember something like day two or three, right after the surgery where we were starting our physio and pushing through the pain. And I realized how weak I was and I realized how big this challenge was. And uh, I lied in bed. I think, I don't think I slept that night, you know, and I, I, my mind was just racing about, you know, what the hell, you know, like, this is not going to be easy. And I just made that much decision then. And it's not like every day was an easy day or every day I was positive, but I had decided at that moment that, you know, I was going to drive forward, that I wasn't going to look backwards and feel sorry for myself or be upset. I was the one that fell off the cliff. I made those decisions. And in life, you get to choose some of the mistakes that you make. And sometimes they just happen to you. And uh, you, the only choice you have is how you drive forward. So I, I did make the choice to drive forward, even through the hard times. But the, the the challenge that you know i mean to we all what, have hold on one sec to what do you attribute that strength to be able to make that decision that hey my fault i made the i made this decision i'm just going to push through it now what what kind of you know how how do you make that decision how how are you that strong in that moment that's a good question i i, I mean i think it's got to do with community around you the life i've lived my parents uh you know i contributed to whatever sort of things influenced you as you grew up. I, I lived in a, you know, I grew up around a very positive uh, family, a very positive community. And I think through my life, I've always found success in, in driving through challenges. You know, I've never through my whole life, I can say that I've ever had a good moment where, when I felt, when I acted, you know, negatively or shitty, you know, and when you make that, when you empower yourself to recognize that, you know, even in the worst of moments, um, you know, the best way forward and the way to generate uh, positivity is to just accept and move forward in a positive way. Because as soon as you become somebody that's bitter and blaming, you are really just going to sit in that puddle. Nobody's going to pull you out unless you decide to turn the page or, 
or you know look differently at the, at the perspective i don't know i think that uh, you know just it's just uh, my life that lived up to that moment whether it prepared me or not for it uh, i just was not going to accept being negative and because i didn't really feel like there was going to be any pathway there of success so you know it's also again, a way to heal too right yeah. I mean, if you're, yeah. if you're approaching it like, okay, I'm going to get better. I'm going to give myself this opportunity as opposed to beating yourself up. You're, you're, I, you know what? I might've even been Eve too, because I can remember sitting there and I mean, I literally, I think through my whole life, I've been high on life. I just, you know, if there's one thing that gets me high, it's life. I just, I, uh, you know, and so when I had that accident and I saw the challenge, I was still, you know, riding high on the adrenaline of everything that I was doing in life. And, you know, I, I was feeding off of that. Maybe I was naive. I just looked at it and went, ah, I'll drive through this just like everything else. And of course, you know, it's a, it's a rocky road. I met a lot of challenges, stuff that I didn't realize was going to have a challenge that kind of set me back. And, you know, you had to retweak that attitude. You know, you still have moments where you're going, oh, man, can I do this? But, uh, um, you know, and literally, I'd say it took me four years to rebuild my life and, and get it together. But uh, the, the getting back to the... Um, can, can I interject just for a second on, on just how weak you were too? I mean, not that I know how weak you were, but I had, I had a scoliosis in my back. So they, they did a surgery and straightened my back, which was effectively like breaking my back again. This was in 2005. So I'd retired after Athens in 2004. I did it the following summer and I went into it. I actually trained for the surgery. So I was doing like 120 miles a, a week in my racing chair kind of thing. Like I was getting out and getting after it and it was just, and it was a, you know, good 1200 uh, feet of climbing or whatever per, per 20 mile loop and stuff like that. So it was like, it was some legit stuff. And they went to get me up the next day and I felt cut in half. And I, you know, and like you think, well, yesterday, yesterday my arms were strong and I could lift myself up and I'm on the bed trying to get off of the bed and I could not lift myself up. I'd been through all of the emotional stuff, all of the other stuff that you go through when you break your back. So that wasn't an issue, but I was so weak. And so this is what happened to you. You're, you know, you're the magician's assistant. You've been cut in half and you're so weak. <laughs> and it's like, you're, you're, you've got, you've like got to come back from that. Yeah. So this is, yeah. this is the situation of like, you're starting from absolute zero coming yeah. from something where, where you were strong. And so you've yeah. got to well, wonder if yeah. it's ever going to change. And that's, it's an interesting point you make because that is your first challenge in the beginning. And it's really interesting when you break down the evolution of an injury like that, you know, cause the first thing I can think of, you know, the first challenges uh, that I looked at were everything around strength and weakness. My lower body didn't work. Couldn't get in and out of bed. You know, you, you got to learn all those things using half your body. I can remember literally, um, you know, the, for months, I would wake up every morning and stare at my toes, move, 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 you know, like and I could, I, I would have dreams, you know, that my toe moved and I'd realize, oh, I'm dreaming. And then I would, I would think I woke up and then my toes moving and I'm like, no, I'm still dreaming. I would like six times wake up in a dream until I realized I was finally awake and no, my toe was not moving, you know. Or you have that dream where you wake up and you've been walking in your dream <laughs> you think, oh, hold on, hold on. I've just been approaching this differently. Like I've learned, I've had an epiphany in this yeah. dream. And it's kind of like, okay, well, do you want to kick your legs over the, over the side of the bed and see if you actually, if you actually <laughs> you that something? Yeah, you do on that face plant. 
you know, the interesting part uh, is uh, the evolution of that, though, because now if I look back on my life and I think most people that have had an injury or have a challenge, you know, they have what they call the list. What would you want back first? Like if you had the list of things, what is your list, you know? And if I was to ever write a book, um, I would title it Walking is Number Four on my list. It recently went up to three, but Walking is Number Four on my list. And, um, you know, people are like, Number Four? Because everybody thinks, you know, you, you, it's all about wanting to walk again. You know, like that's the most important part. That's how you're whole. If you can walk, then you're normal. Yeah, that's how you're whole. You're walking again. But yeah. the reality is, and I don't know what your list is, but, uh, you know, number one for me is pain. I'd love to get rid of the pain, the neuro pain that we, a lot of us encounter after a spinal cord injury is that driving, burning pain. Um, I don't mind it in my feet. I've got used to it in my feet, but I, I have it also in my, my tailbone. And so sitting for me every day is uncomfortable. And I, you know, like most of us, the, the peaks, ebbs and flows, you know, on a, on a bad day, I literally have to sit, lie sideways and find whatever distraction I can because of the, the neuro pain that I have on, you know, on my bum. And I can only think that that's from the fall, but it's never gone away for, for 30 years. My ass has been on fire, <laughs> which does not sound good on a, on a video, but, uh, that is the reality, but I don't share that with people. Nobody knows that I'm sitting just like you, but that's my well, number see, one. I'm lucky in that respect. I mean, this is, this is where we're a little bit different, right? Cause I look at you like in a racing chair and you can go and sit straight up in your racing chair and I go, Oh, that looks so cool. Like you can, you can open up your lungs. You can get a full, full breath of air. You know, you can get, yeah. you can get those big yeah. muscles involved in the, uh, you know, but I don't have the pain. I don't yeah. have, I don't have any varying for everybody. Right. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I think the lower yeah, levels often have more pain, the lower level yeah. injuries. So anyway, I'll let everybody think about why number where, where walking falls is number four and what number two and three are. But, uh, yeah, number of, uh, four is on my, my list. Uh, walking's number four on my list. I, I have three other things that I would you know like to get back before I get to walking. Cause I'm, hey, everything I'm doing, I'm freaking loving it. I mean, from mountain biking to, uh, to, we were talking about it earlier, free diving, skiing, um, whitewater kayaking that I've done for years and I'm getting back into because my nephew's killing it in whitewater kayaking. I mean, I've lived it, you know, like I have no regrets looking back on my life at how I pushed the limits in every possible way, even with, you know, this injury and the challenges it presents. Uh, so on a adventure, living life to the fullest, ah, ah, you know, like I wouldn't undo anything. But going forward, is there a couple of things I wouldn't mind changing as far as the pain and two and three? Yeah, you know, I, I would like to see those ones kicked off the list. But it is what it is, you know, we drive forward. We're going to get to free diving. I want to get to seven minutes and 27 seconds under the water, 40 meters, <laughs> 131 feet below Which is the nothing surface. In really? In my world, yeah, that is, not. that is. That is yeah. a gigantic distance. But anyway, I want to get to that. But I still want you to answer that question about going through the airport and why oh, you're, yeah, yeah. Why you're, why you're so, how, how you could possibly be so nice to every single person who stopped you <laughs> with an innocent yet not necessarily informed question. I can't believe that that's a lasting impression for you, but uh, that makes me feel good. Well, Canadians are polite, more polite than Americans, yeah. right? I mean, that's the way I'm it works. Texas, though. I shouldn't be this way. I was born in Amarillo, Texas, man. <laughs> um, 
No, perceptual barriers. It was partially that, you know, uh, like, like I said, I was ready to drive for it in my physical um, challenge. But the part that hit me in the face was the way people started treating me. You know, they saw a dude in a chair, you know, and they felt sorry for me. I can remember 30 years ago that literally at least once a week, somebody had come up and pray for me. I hope you walk again. I hope you. I hated it. I hated that, you know, anybody feeling sorry for me, anybody wanting to help me. I just, hey, I'm just a dude in a chair. Come on, you know, like, don't treat me any special. Or you're just a dude. I'm just a dude, yeah. And uh, so I, you know, and I went through a period of time there where I was polite and then a period of time where I would say stupid things, you know, just to, you know, because you were tired of answering the questions and stuff. And I, I realized, though, that when you, when you, when you answer things, you know, non-genuinely and non-caringly, uh, you almost justify whatever perceptions they have, you know, you and so if you, sure. you perpetuate it, you know, so if, uh, you know, it's that balance, because if I make it sound like I'm this incredible guy, you know, like, oh, you know, I push through this and, you know, I'm challenging myself. I'm, if I'm over enthusiastic, I'm suddenly a hero to this person. Like I'm this amazing person that just happened to decide not to kill themselves because they're in a chair. Um, and or if I get a little upset and say, look, come on, you know, like, back up, man. Let me just enjoy my day. You don't have, you know, I don't need this sympathy. If you do that, then you justify the fact that, or their perception that people in chairs are upset and bitter at life because they're, they can't walk. And so I just really drove it home with myself uh, that I wanted to be an ambassador of, of, of change and seeing people in, in chairs with a positive light and break down any sympathy, break down any sort of non, you know, non-ability, perceptual barriers, get them to see the person. So, you know, whether it was in the airport with my racer or anything else. Uh, and to this day, uh, whether it's about being in a chair or uh, I think the only change in the world that's going to make the biggest difference is all those little things that each and every one of us do to, to, to care for each other and be patient and understand each other. Um, you know, if, if, there, if I'm anything, that's what I hope I get remembered by is just how I you know, accepted people and, and took the time to, to really understand and, and share my story and listen to theirs. Well, I think that's a great thing. And it's, it's, it's definitely the most memorable thing, mm. you know, because I, I remember going through airports with you and going, Kelly stops for every single <laughs> person and has a, has a meaningful conversation with everyone, which is a challenge when you're often running late and you're, and you need to get through yes. and you're getting this six foot long wheelchair that you're pushing in front of you with one hand, holding with one hand and holding onto the pushing with your, your regular wheelchair with the other hand and trying to navigate all these people who don't go in the same direction. And then somebody's taking a turn right in front of you and you're trying not to run them over and trying to not to end up upside down and all of these but things. But we are rock stars. We are rock stars when it comes to the airports, man. I, people love traveling with me because we get skirted through every lineup. Oh, over here, sir. Over here, sir. <laughs> you know, I've, I've timed myself from my house to sitting on a, uh, on a, on a, a seat in a plane in, in Kelowna. Now it's a smaller airport, but I have literally been from waking up, alarm went off, jumped in, now this is without the racer, jumped in my chair, jumped in the truck, went through, got my ticket, went through security, sitting 28 minutes, 28 minutes from my bed to a seat in a plane. And I mean, this is an international airport where you have to go through security and stuff. So we, we just skirt all lineups, man. People love traveling with me. <laughs>
<laughs> it is it is true that's for sure wow now it, it's funny because you talk about you talk about walking you know is number four and i think i think it was jim Knob who was a who was a wheelchair racer you know some he said he said why walk when you can fly <laughs> it's awesome and it's and it's part of that and i think it was i think it was Kanab who said this and and it was but it's true in in some ways right because can you yeah. just talk can you talk the audience through your pbs at at different distances so what'd you do the marathon at uh you know again my 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 best marathon in in, in was boston one one hour 24 minutes but of course they're crushing that those times now um under one hour and 20 but that's boston Heinz, who you spoke about earlier, you know, the machine, man. God, that guy knew how to turn it over like a locomotive in his prime. Uh, but he still holds the world record at one hour and 20 minutes on a flat course. You know, Boston, of course, does not count as a world record because it's predominantly downhill. But one hour and 20 minutes is a world record. My best was one hour, 24 minutes, which, uh, you know, is Boston. So uh, we did Athens in uh, just around 128. I think Kurt was a minute or two, which is mostly uphill. But any fast course is around is an hour and 30. You know, you're pacing yourself at about, uh, well, I'm not sure what that is. I'm thinking kilometers, but uh, I think the pace is around two minutes per kilometer or something like that. Right. So it's about three minute mile kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, because that's uh, that's 118. I have actually gone 118, but uh, but that was in a really downhill course at St. Uh, <laughs> George in, in Utah. I hit 50 I miles an one. hour. I really wanted to do that one. <laughs> oh, it would have been a good one for you because you could you climbed so much better than I did. There were three climbs in it, and I think I think somebody who could really climb well on that course could conceivably go sub one hour. Yeah, yeah. I remember you telling me about that, and I'm like, I got to go there. It was funny. I went to do the old Vegas was similar. You had to do about 10 K uphill and then the rest was literally straight downhill. And I, uh, I thought I went to Vegas to go, Oh, I'm going to go Vegas. I, I'm going to rip the uphill as hard as I can puke at the top of the 10 K and then tuck 30 K. So I go there and it's the very first year, never in the history of that race, of that race had they ever had winds that they, they had winds coming from the opposite direction, uh, gusting up to 30 miles an hour. <laughs> so I was literally pushing on the downhills. Like it was a DH and I could barely hold 26 pushing as hard as I could. I was just like, this sucks. That's 26K. So that's, <laughs> that's what, that's like sub 15 miles yeah. an hour. Yeah. Oh, it was harsh, harsh, pushing as hard as I could to go downhill. <laughs> Which for us is sort of the demarcation point. That's like a four minute mile is 15 yeah. miles an hour. And so uh, it was, it was harsh, harsh. Uh, there were more than half the field pulled out couldn't finish it it was sand sand it was basically a sandstorm like i was a mess at the end of that race well you yeah. knew you did something afterwards that's for sure yeah definitely yeah. what about some of the other distances how about a 1500 5k 10k uh 1500 pretty proud of that i did a 258 something back in uh when we were racing atlanta on the atlanta course uh, with a bunch of you know with saul and uh you know that group of uh and uh and Ernst and Krieg, so 258. And, uh, you know, I think right now, although I think it'll be a long before they go below 250. And, uh, but I think that, you know, sub three minute mark is kind of a badge of honor in the 1500. If you've gone under three minutes, you, you know, you, you've proven yourself uh, capable in that distance. So, so, you know, a bunch of us hit two sub three and hit 258. Uh, and that would have been in, you know, like 2003 or something like that. So those, those records are still, 
pretty significant in the, in the sport of wheelchair racing to be sub three minutes. Uh, I think the best, uh, you know, my best course and the one that really held strong, you know, that showed, you know, my diversity as far as being, you know, really strong on the uphills and, and you know, I, aerodynamically and technical on the downhills was uh, Peachtree. I loved that race. You know, it, it, it showcased everything that was my strength, you know, because we had to hit, as you know, the, the first uh, 5K is a lot of downhill. So you've got to got to have your, you know, your DH dialed in and, uh, you know, have the have your risk to reward factor dialed in because of the pots, you know, the manholes and the cracks in the road when you're doing 70K on a downhill or whatever that is, 50 miles an hour on a DH and you're you know, trying to navigate all the bumps of the roads and then the rest is uphill. And so you got to grind it out and uh, a lot of really good battles. So me, Saul and Kurt were the very first ones. We set a, you know, uh, ended up being Saul's record, but it was the three of us that punched the, punched the time on that one, which was a sub, sub 18, well, sub 1850. Nobody had ever gone in 18 minutes and 50 seconds. And I think we did 18 I think Sal was 1832 or 1838, and I was 1842, and Kurt was right in there too. That's that's fast. That's that's a fast time. Which is which is incredibly fun. So that's for a 10k. So that's that's 1830 for a for a 10k, which yeah. the I think the fastest just got broken. Just got broken. Just, yeah, just uh, by Daniel, yeah. right? So that's uh, yeah. Roman Chuck. Yeah. But, but you look at that and it's what the running is 26 or something like that. So that's yeah. eight minutes, almost a mile, almost a minute, a kilometer faster. Yeah. yeah. That's yeah. insane. I mean, that's, yeah. that's fast, 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 fast. I love that race. So it was a grinder, you know, like it really came to a battle on that uphill. And I can remember every year it would be Sal, Kurt, Krieg, Ernst, you know, all of us every year just grinding it out, trying to, you know, attacking on each other and puking going on the uphill because it's, you know, you're, you're pushing, you're redlining that whole thing. And then you got to save just enough to be that guy that crosses first. So Peachtree was a, a fun, fun race. Talking about times, what, what is it like to hold your breath for seven minutes and 27 seconds? <laughs> It goes back to that whole Zen thing I was telling you about, uh, but there's, there is more pain in that than most things I've done, you know, to having to push through it. But it's understanding the, the physiology of holding your breath too. A lot of people will say, how are you not doing brain damage? But reality is you're never, you're not cutting yourself off from oxygen. You're just, you're, you're basically, your body is managing the usage of the, the, uh, the oxygen that you're storing in your lungs. It's not much different than uh, somebody going to Everest. Uh, Kilimanjaro, I'm sure you went through some sort of acclimation to the lower oxygen levels. And uh, that's what your body does. And it has to acclimate. I mean, somebody sitting on Everest at camp, whatever, third camp, they're actually at a higher, higher risk because they're at weeks of sitting there at low oxygen levels. Whereas I'm only, you know, a free diver's only limiting, you know, themselves through minutes. Uh, and so to push, you don't just go out and hold your breath for, you know, seven minutes without sort of understanding you're what they, yeah. you're definitely working up to it uh so for me I, i've always had a fascination with holding my breath don't ask me why i don't know it was just one of those challenges anytime i got into a pool as a kid i would hold my breath and you know tell it hurt and but i didn't know what the hell i was doing i probably pushed two minutes on my own without knowing what i was doing and uh but anytime my body because your body will tell you hey breathe dumbass breathe 
and that's what they call a convulsion. It's, you know, your body convulsing, telling your body to, your lungs and you to breathe, you know, take in some air, man, I want air. Um, but you can push past that and that's what, you know, you get trained to learn what that is and to relax it and push past it. And so when I was younger, I, you know, I, I listened to that. I went, Ooh, okay, this can't be good. So I, you know, stopped the, the breath hold. But when you get into free diving, you understand that you, you learn the physiology of it and they teach you how to, first of all, pack your lungs. So, um, and again, for me, the fascination was, wow, I can hold my breath longer. I'm in, I want to do this, you know? Um, and uh, so you learn how to do the slow breathe up, which is key to basically expelling your, the, you know, the CO2 in your lungs and, uh, and increasing the percentage of O2 in your lungs. So you go through a breathe up phase and that's anywhere from two to five minutes, sometimes longer, but generally two to five minutes. And then also when you're doing that, you're, you also learn techniques of how to pack your lungs. So how to put as much into your lungs as possible. And there's all kinds of different techniques, stretches, things that you learn along the way to prepare you for putting as much O2 into your lungs as possible. And so I went to Kona to learn all that stuff. And um, just within one lesson, I went from two minutes to four minutes. They thought I was insane, you know, that I, you know, I was able to jump to four minutes just like that. But I accredited two things. This was after my, you know, marathon racing. So my resting heart rate was already down to something like 32, 38. I had a ridiculous low resting heart rate when I was relaxed. And I have big lungs, you know, it was just a genetic thing with uh, being a marathoner. So um, it, it, it kicked in pretty quick for me to uh, be able to hold my breath at, at a, you know, ridiculous sort of mount. Um, and then I just evolved with the sport. I went to the Caymans and they were doing a competition down there. And so the depths that you were talking about, uh, you know, these guys that you have to learn a lot of other techniques because you're dealing with pressure when you go down, you got to know how to equalize, which I still am terrible at. So I could never, I had the breath hold to go and do three or 400 feet, which is what the, you know, the, the maximum, you know, the guys that are really good or girl, guys and gals that are doing it. They're past 300 feet. I could. I was having a tough time pushing past 120, 130 because you know that pressure in your your head, and you're trying to equalize. And you know when your lungs are this big at surface, they go down to this big as you get further and further down. They compress, and you're trying to. You're upside down. You're trying to take that little pocket of air that's in your lungs and bring it down to your head and equalize your sinuses. It's very difficult. Uh, maneuver to do and uh, I just was not able to do it so I could I could hit 130 feet I had the breath hold to do more but um, getting back to the breath hold you, you do all of that and then um, I could go four minutes without actually even feeling like I wanted to breathe you know I could hit four minutes and I'd be still holding my breath going all right this is good and then I'd get my um, I'd hit my first uh, convulsion and your first convulsions are your, your strongest ones. That's when your body's first saying, you know, breathe. But once you push past it, um, you know, you can then start pushing through those and relaxing through the, you know, the convulsions of your body wanting to, you know, wake, snap you out of it. Uh, and then after that, it's just taking stock of, your, of the not passing out. You have to take stock of, am I still, you know, am I, am I going to black out or, you know, how much conscious do I have left? Because the very last mechanism that your body has is that it uses the last remaining bit of O2 to function your mind and your, you know, to, you know, your, everything else starts to fail. I think they call it a Samba. If you ever watched somebody that's about to pass out, 
you'll see them. They look like a drunk. They're doing all this, you know, and, and it's basically your body slowly just driving all the, you know, uh, O2 left to for your, for your brain. So. <laughs> Which sounds crazy. I know. But as soon as you pass out, you wake up and boom, it's all over. But you don't, that doesn't count. Part of what you're doing when you're doing this is you're getting out the CO2, right? I mean, this is your breathe up where you're getting rid of the CO2 because the CO2 is the stuff that becomes painful. It's that burn that we relate to, right? That that's, that's telling you, no, breathe, breathe in, you know, breathe this stuff out, breathe this in. Everybody's felt that if they've held, held their breath. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, everybody's felt it every, at every point. So, I mean, you keep talking about Zen. Is, is there is there a Zen that comes from this, and and has this affected any of what you do afterwards? Are you able to bring yourself into a more centered kind of kind of position in in the face of stress, in the face of of whatever, as a result of what you've done? Is it is it training that has a practical application in the rest of your life? I think so. Uh, you know, we all of us have different experiences and we can apply them in different ways in our life. But for sure, you know, one of the, you know, uh, practical uh, application to life is dealing with stress, you know, dealing with uh, high intense moments and learning how to calm yourself. And, you know, even though whether it's preparing for a competition, preparing for a test or in the moment something happens, taking stock of your anxiety, taking stock of, you know, that stress you have to teach yourself how to breathe, how to center yourself. And uh, even though it's in a controlled environment for free diving, that's exactly what you're doing. So you go through a mental sort of preparation to, you're trying to relax yourself as fully as you can. So the breath holds where I did 727 is, uh, is completely static. They call it the static breath hold. So basically you're lying in a pool and you're doing your breathe up. And then when you take your breath in, your final big push uh, and inhale, um, you just float in the water with your head down. You're like basically like you're dead. You know, you're just relaxing completely. So when I'm upside down uh, with my face down like that and holding my breath, my arms are just hanging completely relaxed. And that's, that's what you have to do. You have to put yourself in a meditative state. Uh, and people always ask, well, what are you thinking about? How do you relax yourself? And, you know, everybody's a little bit different in what it is that, that relaxes them. But I think the best way to describe it is that you're not thinking of anything. Anything that goes through your mind, you're letting it pass. Because as soon as your mind sticks on something, then you're thinking. And then you're, you, know, you're, you don't control necessarily your, your emotions or your whatever when you start to actually dig into thinking something. So when I'm in a meditative state like that, where I'm just really trying to you know, allow my body to be as relaxed as possible, I just let thought pass through me i don't allow it to stick on anything i focus on breathing i focus on am i relaxing you may think you're relaxing and the next thing you know oh no actually my shoulders are tense oh you know i'm actually clinching so i'm very focused on is my body fully relaxed and not letting anything you know and just letting my mind wander as fully as possible um so it's a meditative state that you know practical yeah, I think teaching ourselves how to relax and in stressful moments is, is always practical. Have you always been good at that? Or is that something that you became good at as a result of free diving or became better? I became good at that because of this accident. I would say more than anything, because I didn't have a lot of patience when I was younger. Um, I was very, you know, go, 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 go. And so when I had this accident, you have to learn a whole new level of patience with yourself, with society, with how long it takes. I love doing things on my own, you know, 
and I will always find a creative way to to build something, do something, so that I can maintain my independence. But what would take an able-bodied person, you know, an hour will take me three to four hours, maybe even a day, just because I have to drag the material over and I have to, you know, it takes me to figure out a way to, you know, actually do this without having the ability to do it. So you come up with these creative ways to actually achieve something. And so learning to calm myself became a necessity after this accident. And then, you know, you just drive that into every other sort of venture you're doing. And you've maintained that because sometimes it's it's what you do to deal with the initial accident, right? The initial accident and the huge change in your life. But then things get a little bit easier. And, you know, I mean, it's like, yeah, it might take you a little bit longer than it takes an able-bodied person. But within our world, you're, you're on the high end of, of, of things. You know, I remember watching you like getting, uh, you know, like we're leaving the track and you'd stand up to put your, your like your sweatpants on. And I was like, Oh, like that's, that's kind of <laughs> cool. Like that seems like, you know, as opposed to me sort of like wrestling with my pants to pull them, pull them up. Like as I'm sitting in my chair, lift myself up on the wheels and pull the, pull them up. And, you know, balance is, is, is relatively good, but you never really know if it's going to work. And so, yeah. uh, so, I mean, but, but you've been able to maintain that throughout, throughout the years. Cause it's been what, 30 years or so now, right? I'm not 29. It'll be 30 soon. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think so. I, 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 honestly, we, if we're not evolving in our life, if we're not honing our mind, uh, our body will be our body, but it's driven by our mind. So, you know, I, I continue to um, evolve myself in ways that um, make me a better person, allow me to enjoy life more. But I think, uh, you know, that uh, ability to calm yourself and, and deal with stress, particularly if you are a person that does push the limits, you know, uh, and a lot of the things you do, you have to, uh, if, especially in the risk reward, you have to calm yourself. You have to understand what the risks are. And then if you are going to take those risks, uh, being in the right state of mind. So it, I think in a lot of stuff that I do, yeah, it's, it's very key so that I, I'm trying to keep myself out of the hospital. <laughs> well, that's it. And I think physiologically, you give yourself a good chance to be healthy as well, right? Because we hold so much of that stress. This becomes ulcers. This becomes, you know, you know, hypertension, whatever it is. Stress seems like a, a fairly decent transition to what you do professionally, which is one of the most stressful jobs out there, right? As an air traffic controller. I mean, they, there are a lot of people who have a lot of trouble with that stress. How long, how did you get to be an air traffic controller? How did this, how did this work out and how long have you been doing it? I was a pilot first, so I was a commercial pilot for two years uh, prior to my accident uh, doing fire patrols. I'd go out in a small little plane and uh, I would grid fires that maybe were sparked up from lightning storms the previous day and I loved it. It was great. It was an adventure. You know, I, I loved small, flying small planes and going out on a mission to, you know, uh, if we found a fire, I would uh, map it and sometimes we'd have to fly low level and to mark the uh, the location and the access point from roads for the ground crews, I'd have to throw biodegradable toilet paper out the windows to mark in the trees the pathway from the road to the fire because they can't always see it, the small smokers. I loved it. Uh, so that was, you know, that was my first career really was, um, you know, a commercial pilot. And when I had my accident, uh, 
you know, long story short, that just wasn't an avenue to pursue. There was, there was a lot of perceptual barriers to push down, uh, being a pilot in a chair, stuff like that. And uh, I gave it a shot for about a year or two, trying to push those perceptual barriers down. And I just thought, you know what, I want to get on with my life. And um, I, I don't, you know, I mean, uh, this is not going to be that avenue without a long, long fight. And um, so I made the choice to go to the other end and, and you know, get on the mic and, uh, it's been a good choice, but uh, being an air traffic controller, uh, you know, I think one of the greatest uh, perceptual errors out there is how much stress it is to be an air traffic controller. And we love it because we get paid well for for dealing with, uh, you know, what we have to do. But uh, the reality is uh, you, you go through some extensive training, extensive to, and you, if you don't pass that training, you don't get the, the, the license to be an air traffic controller. And so when you get to that point that you know how to do this job, uh, you do it very confidently and effectively, and you have moments where you know you're you see the traffic building, and it's a little bit of a gut check. But all your training teaches you how to to separate and manage the flow of that traffic. And um, early on, um, there was probably a few stressful things, but uh, it's mostly just mentally draining. When you work heavy traffic, at the end of the day, your brain's fried, which was perfect for my marathon training because I didn't need my brain to go out and do, you know, <laughs> 30, 40, 50 K, you know, just let the brain turn off and, and then go into my Zen mode. But so it was a perfect balance. These days, technology that has changed air traffic control. There's so much, it's that blend of the human interaction to a computer assistance to allow you to just make better decisions and manage the traffic better. So, um, yeah, great career for me. And, um, uh, when you're good at something, you don't feel the stress the same same way. Are you different in that by virtue of your sport, or a lot of the people who who do that do they have similar kinds of uh, kind of backgrounds to you? I think that was probably probably one of the things that I'm most proud of, and uh, the fact that probably was my biggest disadvantage too was that I held a full time job through my whole racing career, which uh, most of the guys that I competed at their full time job was racing. So. I didn't realize what a disadvantage that was until I got closer to Athens and was really starting to push the miles more and more and more and still working a full-time job. My recoveries were not really where they needed to be. I needed to find ways to recover better. And when you work full-time, you don't get the same recovery. So I ended up taking three months off prior to Athens and uh, it, it amazed me how, what a difference it is to be able to train, focus on training, recover, and that becomes your life. Everything you're doing is about performance. And I mean, I was already at that state, but I had to blend it into, uh, into uh, a full-time job as two. And uh, when I retired, it was mainly because I just couldn't balance the two out. I was like, I can't do a full-time career air traffic controller and be a full-time high-performance athlete uh, the two together were taking their toll on me. And, uh, you know, I chose the one with the retirement plan. <laughs> <laughs> Which makes a lot of sense. I mean, it's, yeah. you can make some money as a wheelchair racer, but you make some money and there's no guarantee year over year that you're going to continue to make money. And, and oftentimes equipment is really expensive. Travel is expensive, different things like that. And it was a great, great thing to be able to do. So as you get older, you look at it and you think, I don't really want to stop. And you've done so many things. You're, you're strategic right now. It sounds like you're mostly in the mountain biking side of things. Like this is, this is the big thing, which I'd imagine is as mentally challenging as it is physically and probably more mentally challenging sometimes. 
is that what's next or is there something else that is going to be next the thing that will continue to keep you young it's a combination of the two it's a good question really because we all we all have to have to be driving towards something i mean uh the idea of retirement from air traffic control just to do nothing doesn't excite me at all so you know, re, re, air traffic control has been my funder. I've enjoyed the career, but it's been my funder of everything that I do. You know, that's my base, uh, found, you know, financial base of everything I'm doing. But, you know, when that uh, when that uh, last day comes, my real focus is really around creating an adventure lifestyle, you know, with friends. And uh, I mean, it's why I'm here right now uh, with, you know, in this lodge with my, you know, my buddy that's taking up this, uh, you know, this journey and this challenge of, of running this lodge and turning it into an adventure center here in, in Golden, BC. Um, I'm, I'm living off of that dream right there is the idea of, I want to, um, I really want to expand my adventure uh, creativity and uh, share that with people. Uh, you know, just coming here now, my, my, my creative juices are flowing and the idea of what we could do in a place like this, there's, there's mountain biking here, there's whitewater kayaking here, there's paragliding here, and then there's the ski side of it. And they're doing adaptive trails here too. So whether you're doing a two-wheel bike like I'm in or you're, or you're jumping on a four-wheeler. Um, so my idea of, of you know, pushing the next limit is uh, to continue pushing my, what I'm doing on an adventure level, uh, but sharing more of it. I wanna spend a lot more time sort of bringing people into um, you know, that adventure lifestyle. I, I feel like, um, you know, life is way more fun if you just figure out ways that are, you know, to enjoy to the fullest, you know, and it doesn't have to be extreme. It just has to be, uh, you know, the idea, I love playing video games too, but man, there's nothing more than real fun. You know, the real adventure of being out uh, and feeling wind in your face or the mud in your face, you know, and a little bit of blood, you know, I mean, Come back from a hard ride where you got mud, blood, and tears, and sweat. Uh, that's that's those are the stories that you sit around a campfire and and you can look back at your life and, and feel you know pretty accomplished and satisfied and content. So um, you know I think uh, really I'm just gonna you know uh, continue working with uh, I haven't mentioned his name but uh, Bjorn Ing I didn't mention it but it, you know the crank bike guys and his. Uh, his stuff, I want to see where we can go, whether you're able buttered or not. I think that he's got a great thing as far as dual sport uh, technology that allow you to put his uh, equipment on any bike. But also, I think we can throw that onto adaptive stuff too. So, you know, get people out on trails and then uh, um, just bringing communities together. Uh, that's that's kind of where I'm going. I'll stay young. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bike with young people and uh, inspire everybody. Is part of it just showing people that you can do it? Is that sort of similar to your conversations that you have in the airport? I don't know if it's showing people, you know, what I, I mean, inspiring people. I think the important thing, when I used to do my, my talks, you know, I really didn't want to talk about what my accomplishments were. What I wanted to do was share messages in, in, in life that allowed me to enjoy life to the fullest. So when I do stuff like this, I want that to translate into whatever that might be for somebody else that gives them a high, you know, it, it could, end, it could uh, it can be art, uh, it could be anything, but the idea is to inspire people, you know, because people look at you and go, that's nuts, but they're still inspired. They may not want to do what you're doing, but I do want to get people trying some of this stuff because I think that the technology is there for people to try it. And so, but whatever that translates into, the idea is, is to uh, just open up people's minds and see where it goes for them. 
Well, because you are human too. I mean, we've gone through so many of the amazing things that you've done that are sort of, some of them are a little bit head scratching, you know, for a lot of us, you know, the, the speed skiing, the, the, uh, the free diving, some of this stuff where you go, that's that you're playing for real. Like there, there could be some real ramifications if things go badly there. But at the same time, you're, you're, you know, part of, part of what's great about you is that you're a human being, you know, and that, that you do some things that are really great, but you know, you struggle along the way and you're willing to try to figure out how to yeah. get where you want to go. And, and people can easily see a finished product. You know, I think that that's sometimes the problem is that they either see the guy in the wheelchair where they go, Oh, I'm so sorry that this happened to you. Maybe there'll be a cure or they see the guy, you know, in the racing chair going 120 for a marathon yeah. and go, well, you're Superman. You know, and, and, and the truth is that you have your moments of being Superman, but you really are, you really are somebody who's a real, who's a real human. You're mostly Clark Kent, you know? Yeah. Well, you know, it's, I'm going to spin that into a story. Uh, it makes me think about, you know, being an ambassador, like you said, and I feel like it's the same way here. Since I've been on an e-bike, uh, it's been a really interesting thing to be, um, the e-bike industry has kind of gone through a little bit of a you know, uh, a revolution and, and evolution itself, you know, when it first came out, there was a lot of anti-bikers out there, purists. They're like, oh no, you can't have e-bikes. They're going to wreck the trails and stuff. And here I am jumping on an e-bike and, uh, you know, I'm going out where even on places where they don't allow e-bikes, you know, I'm kind of pulling my accessibility card a little bit and it's, you know, I don't want to pull that, but that is the reality of how I get out there. I can't do it any other way. So most accept that. And I'm really just another person on a bike, but I happen to use a motor to help me get through. And so it's been accepting, but not everybody sees that. And I, I, there have been a bunch of times I'll be riding by and my e-bike isn't as quiet as some of the other ones. And they'll know it's an e-bike and they'll look at me and they'll go, cheater, cheater, won't you get a real bike, you know? And I'm like, wow. This is crazy. I'm just a guy riding the bike, you know, and here's a, here I am again, another perceptual barrier. I got to break down. I remember riding um, in Whistler and uh, we were doing, I mean, people are going up chairlifts. How am I any more of a cheater than somebody that's going up a chairlift so that they can ride down? So we're doing the DH and I come rolling out of a berm, uh, a run, and uh, there's no trees around. There's nothing. I'm, I'm kind of ahead of the pack that I was with. And there's a guy there and he sees my motor and he says, oh, cheater, you know, kind of says jokingly. I was like, yeah, yeah it is what it is, you know, sort of thing. I, I can't really stop. I'm looking for a tree and I can't. So I lost my thinking about him and what he said. I lost my balance there and kind of lost my focus and I fell over. You know, I'm like 10 feet away from him and I kind of fall over, hit the dirt. And, uh, and then he's looking at me kind of strange and I, I kick my feet out of the, you know, out of the clips and stuff. And I kind of crawl over and he's like, you're right. And I'm like, oh, no, I'm partially paralyzed. So, you know, that's why I use an e-bike. He's like, oh, I'm such an asshole. You know, like, I feel so bad. Let me put my, take my foot out of my mouth. And I said, hey, it's okay. I said, but the reality is it doesn't really matter if I'm in a, you know, I, if I'm disabled or not. I mean, an e-bike is just a person out riding. It's like, you're right, actually. I'm actually already thinking of getting one. <laughs> So it's just, it's just so funny how, you know, we just, you have to push these barriers of acceptance and people always stick at the negative side. Uh, um, I got to tell you this other story that's just, it made me think of this. It's so funny, Chris, you'll, you'll love it. And it's all about perception again, but this one had such a funny twist. So last year I was riding really, really well. Uh, I was getting to the point where I'm starting to get air. I'm starting to push the speed, technically running it through, you know, some tight spot and, 
And, you know, starting to get to the point where I'm going to challenge myself on some of the more extreme features at bike parks. You know, they have the big ramps, they have the jumps. So there was this one trail, uh, I think it's called World Cup in Silver Star. And uh, it has this big, you know, you have those banked wooden berms, but, um, you know, some are gentle and you can ride even if you don't have speed, you just ride on it. This one was so banked, it was at least 80 degrees, almost 90, like almost vertical. And the only way you can hit this one is with G-forces. You have to hit this with speed and you have to hold the line. And I'd been down that run before and I, I went by it. I went, nope, not doing that. Risk reward, not worth it. Uh, uh, as we were coming up though, uh, this, this last year, I'm riding so well, my confidence is high and I knew that was coming up. And it, in my head, it's so funny how your mind works. I'm riding hard and I'm thinking about that thing coming up and I'm like, I'm going to do it, man. I can do it. No, risk to reward, man. Risk to reward. No, you can do it. It's worth it. It's going to be fun. You're going to nail it. So I see it come around the turn, and there it is. And I made my decision. I'm going for it. So let off the brakes, get a little throttle, drop it down to the ramp, get on this thing. I'm freaking sideways holding the G-forces on this thing. And I'm like, oh, man, this was a bad idea. Like, I'm barely hanging on. And then I look ahead of me. I look ahead of me, and there's a bike leaned up against the ramp in the middle of this feature. There is no outs. I, I, I can't even turn the bike to even think about an out. I'm like in my head instantly, can I swear? Am I allowed to swear on the scene? I'm effed, I'm effed. I'm like, what the hell am I gonna do? Like in a second, you know, like the world freezes in my head, I'm effed, I got no outs here. I can't, I, I got too much G forces in here. I'm barely hanging on as it is. So as I come up to this thing, I try my best to pop a little wheelie to try and jump it and stuff. All it did was just smash, smash into this bike, corkscrews me, my bike flies off me and hits a tree, snaps the handlebars. I go flying off to the right, doo -doo 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 -doo, like this. And uh, I kind of came out of it and, uh, you know, bruised, but nothing broke and stuff. And I'm like, whoa, that was insane. And uh, I start crawling back to my bike, you know, and all of a sudden the guy whose bike that was in the middle comes running over. He's like, oh man, are you all right? Are you all right? And he sees me crawling. He says, can you, can you walk? And I'm like, no, no, man, I can't walk. You can't walk. Oh man, are you, are you hurt? And I'm like, no, I'm partially paralyzed. And he's like, you're paralyzed? Oh my God. The guy's just freaking out, you know, and I'm just being all casual. And he's like, and I'm like, no, no, I've always been paralyzed, man. And it's like, he's like, I don't get it. Like, well, what do you want me to do? I'm like, get your bike off the trail, man. <laughs> That's what I want you to do. Get your bike off the trail. Oh, it's just the most hilarious moment in the world. I wish I had, I, my GoPro died out uh, just before that run. If I had that on video, it, it would be viral, man. It was just the funniest thing. And that guy followed me around like a lost puppy for the rest of the day. You know, wanted, you know, just wanted to learn about the e-bike, wanted to learn about my, you know, this whole setup. And he felt bad, you know. Um, but, uh, you know, again, I could have been really mad at that guy, but ain't gonna change the moment so i just embraced it and you know um you know became a friend with that guy and just kind of hung out the rest of the day and rode <laughs> it's funny i had to go buy a new helen bar so you were effectively beached though i'm like yeah oh yeah it was funny yeah you I couldn't go beached. anywhere no so the guys that i was riding they came up behind me and these are all high level guys high you know one is ceo of an engineering company and then we got steve here who's running this business now we call him hills and uh, they're both sort of high dynamic guys. And so Hilsey jumps into the controlling the event mode. And he's like, 
he's got he's gone up there any bikers coming down he's waving them off and he's controlling the event telling people what to do and then bernie jumps into you know engineer mode and he's looking at my bike and go grabs a stick and some, starts fixing the handlebars enough that i could ride it back down so we got my bike going and i figured out a way to ride it down with one handlebar broken and the other one still kind of you know functioning and went to the shop and put a new handlebar on but uh, <laughs> you gotta be creative oh man you gotta be creative it was hilarious well kelly it's absolutely awesome to catch up with you it's been far too long thank yeah. you for your stories thank you for thank you for doing all this stuff i mean it's just it's so cool looking at everything that you've done and it's a great reminder to me and i'd imagine everybody else that it really is a it really is an adventure like let's find a way to do what we want to do and sometimes you have to be a little bit more creative to do it so yeah you know and, and thanks thanks to all those guys out there you know i, I don't enjoy facebook uh, and social media but i do enjoy looking at all the adventures and all the other people out there that are pushing the limits there's some really really good stuff uh you know with all the different adaptive equipment that's coming out and pushing the limits and i just love the transformation of attitudes you know there's there's so many uh positive attitudes and people pushing the limits now and you know those are all ambassadors for change and uh, you know we've gone a long ways to when me and you uh you know maybe we're first in a chair and uh where the predominant perception was something else and uh, we've had to go a long way to get to where we are today and it's nice to you know uh to see that happening and um happy to be part of it happy to continue being part of it and maybe we'll all hook up again here soon Look forward to it and look forward to what this what this next generation is going to do, too, because they're they've been blowing my mind. So it's really cool. Yeah, exactly. Very much. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks, buddy. Really appreciate yeah, it. Thank you. Have a great Cheers. time there.